want to do is we want to empower the labor movement to engage with their veterans. If we can give our veterans a platform to fight for their country again, they're going to take it. And that's what we want to start with this program. I think the union, myself and Nick included, are saying we're not going to sign what you're giving us because this is unsafe. This is so unsafe for our future, for our community, for the quality of healthcare, not just for us, but everywhere. This will have very rippling effects far past just our, our current scope. But I think the bigger story in a way is that a lot of stories have become labor stories, Seamless and Grubhub. If you read about them 10 years ago, the, the stories were mostly about cool ways to get food. And if you read about them now, it's really a lot about these delivery guys and how they're organizing and how they're trying to sort of like, you know, make a decent living and how they're living. You've got to really be intentional and explicit that this is going to a lot of these places that don't think it's going to them. In Ohio, what's the famous bridge is falling apart down the street from me, Brent Spence Bridge, massive project. Small towns are thinking, this is for that bridge, and I hope it is, this bridge needs something. But in, but they don't think it's for their town. They think it's for somewhere else, and unless you really, I think, bend over backwards to say, there are projects near you that you will see, and then do it so they see it, they'll just assume it's for somewhere else and they won't, frankly, vote based upon it. So what we did was we said, you can fix a lot of this stuff administratively. We don't have to go back to Congress. Right. You, Betsy DeVos, have a lot of power as the Secretary of Education. That's why you wanted the damn job. So she she wanted to destroy things, but she yes. wanted the power, yeah. and on this stuff, she was like, nope, I can't do anything. Welcome to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from some of nearly 150 shows that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. You can check them out at laborradionetwork.org. This week... Unions Veteran Council Executive Director Will Atte talks with the Union Strong podcast about Operation Union Veterans Day. On the Working People podcast, 35,000 workers at healthcare giant Kaiser Permanente are ready to walk off their job on November 15th. Two nurses explain why. Then, on Your Rights at Work, I talked with New York Times media columnist Ben Smith about why the media loves labor now. From The Rick Smith Show, David Pepper, author of Laboratories of Autocracy, exposes the extreme levels of corruption that have somehow become normal in GOP politics and how it gets even worse as we move from D.C. into the States. And we wrap up this week's show with National Education Association and American Federation of Teachers presidents Becky Pringle and Randy Weingarten on the Educating from the Heart podcast, discussing the dynamic power that comes when there's alignment between the national, state, and local unions and rank-and-file members. I'm Chris Garlock for the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Remember... You can find all of today's shows, along with nearly 150 more just like them, at laborradionetwork.org. And if you enjoy the Labor Radio Podcast Network weekly, please be sure to like us and share. Solidarity works. Here's the show.
at the New York State AFL-CIO. I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. On this Veterans Day, we want to celebrate veterans, remember veterans, and honor them for their past and current service to our country. And one way we can do that is by letting veterans and all union members know about the Union Veterans Council at the AFL-CIO. And joining me on the Union Strong podcast to talk about the council is his executive director and U.S. Army veteran, Will Attic. Will, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And first of all, thank you to all the listeners who are veterans or military families out there. But it's a great opportunity today to spread the word about the Union Veterans Council and also tell the story about the millions of Union veterans across the country. Can you tell us a little bit about the Union Veterans Council? Oh, definitely. So the Union Veterans Council at the AFL-CIO is the advocacy organization for any union member who's a veteran or a military family. So the Union Veterans Council, you're here for the veterans as they come out. Do you have an ability to go reach veterans before they actually come home to get them in this information about the Union Veterans Council? We do, and that's part of the historic uh, story of unions and veterans, I think. Throughout history, unions have always worked to support veterans as they transition out. I think a great example of this is Vietnam veterans. When Vietnam veterans came home, they weren't looked favorably on by corporate America. It wasn't popular to support uh, the Vietnam veterans, but unions like the UAW and the United Mine Workers created veteran training programs and created hiring processes to get those veterans. Fast forward, those Vietnam veterans were now leaders in unions across the country when my generation of veterans went to war in Iraq and Afghanistan, and they saw an immediate need to start to support their veterans. And they started to create workforce development programs like the Veterans Program the United Association, Helmets to Hard Hats, the Utility Workers Program, the TMAP, Teamsters uh, Military Assistance Program. And what all these programs are, they work with the Department of Defense, they work with the Department of Labor. And what they're doing is they're recruiting service members, sometimes 90 to 120 days before they leave the military. So instead of having a big break in job, a break in service, Many times these veterans go through these pre-apprenticeship programs and the minute that they leave the military, they're going straight to work. And it's one of the examples that we're so proud of. And the reality of it, the labor movement has the gold standard when it comes to those transition training programs. And we get to work on that, those those issues every single day. That involves getting on bases and recruiting our veterans and, and teaching them about these opportunities. Oh, that's great. So can you tell me a little bit about Operation Union Veterans Day? Definitely. This was something that uh, we've been working on for a while. The goal is to start this annually is that what we want to do for the the month of November, uh, starting on Veterans Day, is start to tell the story of union veterans across the country, whether you're a first-year apprentice in a welding program or an international president like Cecil Roberts of the United Mine Worker, who's a Vietnam veteran. We want to tell that story, but we also want to tell the story that our veterans thrive when they join unions. And what we have to do as a country is create opportunities for our veterans community to thrive. And, and that takes passing legislation. That's That takes programs. What we really want to do is we want to empower the labor movement to engage with their veterans, to lift them up and give them the tools and the platform um, to really take a say in their economic future. If we can give our veterans a platform to fight for their country again, they're going to take it. And that's what we want to start with this program. You can go to uh, unionveterans.org. There's a great article that, that tells you all the different ways you can get involved in Operation Union Veteran. It's as simple if you're a union leader out there, finding a veteran and telling their story on social media, one of your veterans in your union, sharing a video. There, We have opportunities to create videos of union veterans, how they can tell their. But the other thing is we want to be able to talk to union veterans out there. So 
if, if you have the ability to reach into your union membership, what we're trying to do is get as many veterans signed up on our email list so that we can talk to them. Because if we can't talk to them, uh, we can't engage them. And if we can't engage them, we can't teach them about how important the labor movement is to them. And then if we, and if we can't teach them, we can't mobilize them. So it, it, we're really calling for a large effort to get as many veterans um, involved with the Union Veterans Council over the next month and, and really for the year to come. Will Adig, Executive Director of the Union Veterans Council, I want to thank you for your service to our country and to the labor movement and thank all our veterans for their sacrifices they've made for all of us. Thank you again, Will. Hey, thank you so much. And, and as I said, take the opportunity to tell the story of the Union Veterans Council or the Union Veterans this month. I think that you're going to find it. You've got some great stories in in each one of your memberships if you look into it. Absolutely. Thank you. Until next time, stay union and stay strong. All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Working People, a podcast about the lives, jobs, dreams, and struggles of the working class today. As we speak, tens of thousands of members of the Alliance of Healthcare Unions, which is a coalition of 21 local unions representing over 52,000 workers at the healthcare giant Kaiser Permanente in states around the country, are poised to go on strike if Kaiser does not address the serious issues that workers have raised at the bargaining table. These issues not only involve adequate compensation for workers, but also the dire concerns about healthcare workers being grossly overworked and under-resourced, as well as two-tier employment and the struggle to draw in and retain trained staff to provide the care that they are trained to give. But to break down what is happening right now, and how we got to this point. I'm honored to be joined by my guest today. Could you please introduce yourself to viewers and listeners? I'm Hannah Winchester. I am a home health physical therapist. I am also an OFNHP shop steward, and I am my department's labor partner. So I'm I'm Nick Ng. I'm a registered nurse at Kaiser, technically a registered nurse first assist. I do surgery. I've been doing this for almost 10 years now. I'm also a OFNHP steward. And I've been a steward for four or five years now. Nick, Hannah, thank you both so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I wanted to ask if you could help us walk through where we are now, right? And what are workers fighting for and why is it so important? So one of the things that Kaiser continues to say when they ask why they're proposing what they're proposing is that they want to stay affordable. But I think I'm a little confused because it sounds like the only people that are responsible for being affordable or making this company affordable is us, is the healthcare workers. We're not talking about managerial pay cuts. We're not certainly not talking about CEO pay cuts. They give themselves over 100% raises very recently. And I think that these decisions continue to keep coming because no longer are the people making the decisions actual healthcare workers. They're MBAs. They're people that are sitting in an office that look at charts and graphs and numbers, and they're not looking our patients in the face like we are. And that's 
where this fight is coming from is that the people that are actually doing the work are saying, we cannot sacrifice quality. We cannot sacrifice access. We cannot sacrifice the time that we spend with these people because that's unsafe for us and for them. And, but unfortunately it keeps feeling like this is, these are business decisions, not quality decisions. And so that's where we're at right now. I think the union, myself and Nick included, are saying we're not going to sign what you're giving us because this is unsafe. This is so unsafe for our future, for our community, for the quality of healthcare, not just for us, but in everywhere. This this will have very rippling effects far past just our, our current scope. What we're already seeing right now is six to eight weeks for people to get a mental health provider appointment, six weeks for people to get in to see their outpatient physical therapist, ED wait times, nine, 10 hours sitting in the emergency room. When That is so unsafe. And that is not, if we're talking about money, that's not what patients pay for. That's not what they deserve. That's not what drives high quality outcomes to where people can actually recover from things. Our access is going to continue to bottom out. And that is really scary for ourselves. That's really scary for our communities. I know people might look at this situation and say, oh, we just want more money. And it's not that. It's really not. It's tough as a healthcare worker to walk away from patients or potentially walk away from patients. That's That kills us. That's what keeps us up at night is the thought of not being able to do what we do best and what we want to do. But it's a fork in the road. Do we do we just keep our head down and keep doing what we've been doing? Or do we stand up for what we know we have to do for the future? And right now, it's that one. It's keep fighting. I wanted to ask if y'all could talk a little bit about that first kind of contract, why this kind of two-tier system is such a problem uh, in your day-to-day -day work and what the union is pushing for. Obviously, this is likely an attempt to try and weaken our bargaining power in the future by not being in solidarity on certain topics. But I really do think that if we're trying to ad appropriately address the staffing crisis, this isn't it. This is actually going to make it worse. So it still doesn't make sense to us why that's their sticking point. We've proposed some, we proposed, they offered 1%, we proposed 4% as our raise. But again, there's more proposals surrounding what are the other pieces of staffing? How do we make sure that if someone leaves, they get their position posted quicker? There's not this giant delay where everyone else has to pick up that work. How do we make sure we have adequate staff at adequate locations? Really addressing those items and those topics so that we can repair this system for the future. I think that we really just want to protect the quality of work that we can do and make sure that the quality of work that we provide, which is patient care, is appropriate. Yeah, I see good people leaving and it being very challenging to fill those positions. Their proposals do not, they're, <laughs> they're in the opposite direction of making this company attractive to work at. You don't attract LeBron with a 1% raise. You attract Nick Ng who plays basketball with a 1% raise. And I'm not an athlete. We have we have 40 years of evidence of why two-tier wage systems are terrible for unions and for working people. We need to incentivize people to come work at our company and you don't do that with 1%. I think you could do that with, with 4%, but you mainly do that by people knowing that they're supported working at a company. Like money is one aspect of it, but knowing you have enough people 
to, that you can all do your jobs well, that you can take a vacation, get time off, have some work-life balance. Those are attractive things. I really believed were more available to me as a worker to support me when I started. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Hannah. This is Maximilian Alvarez. Thank you so much for watching. A public service announcement with guitar. Know your rights. All three of them. Number one, you have the right not to be killed. All right, welcome, welcome, everybody. Your rights at work. I'm. Chris Garlock here once again with labor lawyer extraordinaire, Ed Smith. Ed, so good. I'm glad you could make it out of your parking lot or wherever it was that you were stuck. <laughs> yes, I'm feeling very extraordinary today. <laughs> I was stuck in a parking lot for 15, almost 20 minutes. With, oh, my God. And, while the gate did not go up and there was no attendant for about half the time. Right, so, but right. I'm here. I'm here You're and here. I'm ready to roll. All right. Uh, just a reminder, folks, 202-588-0893. You got questions about your rights on the job, the ones you have, the ones you don't have, the ones you wish you had. Give us a call, 202-588-0893. You're going to want to put that on speed dial. If you got a question about those rights, we are the place to call. And Your Rights to Work is a proud, and I'm telling you, proud founding member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. That's nearly 150 shows, radio shows, podcasts, just like this. If you like your rights at work, you're going to love these shows. Check them out, laborradionetwork.org. Our next guest is uh, one of my favorite columnists. I always read his stuff. He always gets the, uh, the inside dope on what's happening uh, with media. He is the media columnist uh, at the uh, Washington, the New York Times. I'm trying to do too many things at once. Sorry, Long, sorry Ben. Big it's Ben Smith, and he's, I'm glad to have him here on Your Rights to Work. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So I loved your story. Uh, you know, I wake up on, on Monday morning, I always read the Times, I always read your column, and I was like, oh, my God, he's talking about all the labor media that's going, and I thought we were the only ones that knew about it. So you, you keep your ear pretty close to the ground. Yeah, I've always loved covering labor, actually. And when I was a political reporter for a lot of my career, and you – um you know, if you cover labor politics, and internal labor politics, all the same people show up in presidential politics. So I've always, you know, you cover the fight inside the SEIU. And then two years later, they're all working for different presidential candidates. So, yeah, I've always I've always cultivated labor sources. I was curious about what some of the things that you're seeing. Uh, you know, you, you talked to Kim Kelly, who we've had on the show. I mean, it just seems like there's a whole new generation or maybe several new generations uh, of you know what used to what used to be called a labor beat and sort of was supposedly a, a dying thing, but I'm I'm thinking maybe not. I think there's a bunch of things happening at the same time. One is that at, at mainstream organizations like the Times, you have more reporters writing about labor. Um, I mean, I and you know maybe it's a feature in part. I mean, in part, it's sort of in a feedback loop with 
you know, things that are happening in the world that social media in particular has meant people are seeing the labor movement in a different way. There's a different kind of organizing, maybe even if there's not more of it, it's more visible. Um, you know, you have a new generation of labor leaders who are, you know, more comfortable, I think, with the media or with, with new media, people like, um, you know, the uh, flight attendants union leader. Um, the, um, yeah, and then you also have publications that have organized them where the, where the workers have organized themselves recently. And the Times, the Wall Street Journal have been in, have been union members for a long time, but, you know, basically viewed, I think, the union as a sort of, you know, a service provider. And the, um, and these new wave of digital outlets in particular that have organized over the last decade, starting with Docker in 2015, you know, the, the process of organizing you know, either depending on who you talk to, either you just made them understand the union movement or labor unions, you know, and by the way, not always like them, but made them understand them better and just how the process works. And in other cases, and this is Kim's point of view, really converted them into activists. Right, right. And it was interesting. You you, you talked with Stephen Greenhouse, of course, who longtime you know, labor reporter for The Times. Uh, he's been on our show here and he told you, uh, well, I, you go ahead and tell us what, what he told you. It's kind of interesting, right? Yeah, I mean, he said that for a time, he, 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 as far as he knows, he was the only daily labor <laughs> reporter in the country. There's a lonely beat, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you get all the scoops. Well, I don't, I, I don't know. It's kind of a, but he said that there's now, I guess, and this is just amazing, uh, something like a dozen labor reporters. Yeah, and that would be kind of full time. You know, it's interesting because I tr- started to kind of count them. But right. the thing is, like, if you cover, I, I think it's it's both that there are people who consider themselves labor reporters at the Washington Post, at the New York Times, at HuffPost, at Vice, at BuzzFeed, right? Like, there are people, you know, for whom that is their day job. But I think the bigger story in a way is that a lot of stories have become labor stories. And I think yes. that yes. I'm actually, I'm, you know, I think, I think, you know, the Uber and Lyft stories, if you read about them, Five to ten years ago, they were about these like entrepreneurs and technologists right. building new technologies. And I think if you read about them now, they're about drivers more. And I think if you if you, and you think about like you know Seamless and Grubhub, if you read about them ten years ago, they, the stories were mostly about cool ways to get food. And if you read about them now, it's really a lot about these delivery guys and how they're organizing and how they're trying to sort of like you know make a decent living and how they're living. And so I think, I think the focus actually of a lot of the, a lot of business, what, you know, what I guess I'd think of as business stories has really shifted. You have a great part of your, your column is where you talk about uh, how hot the labor story has become, um, you know, around striketober. And that doesn't that basically follow the, you know, the, if it, if it bleeds, it leads kind of idea. Well, it's more just like, it's a phony trend story and, journalists love phony trend stories so um and and whenever there's a topic that lots of journalists are circling they're always kind of like looking for trends and for ways to write about it again and so often you wind up with these kind of half true you know clever ideas but usually rarely are those about labor you know what i mean like that was like it's not unusual that there would be a kind of questionable trend story in a newspaper what's unusual is it'd be all about about strikes um, and I do think that there's some, I mean, obviously, like, there, there's not a, there's not more people on strike right now than usual in America, no. but, but there is more, I mean, it, there are a bunch of things going on. It's a tight labor market, and so workers have more leverage in negotiations. There's, I think, a level of activism 
you know, that seems to me more than I'd see that I'm used to. And also part of it has happened in very visible parts of the culture, like IATSE in particular, I guess, but also these newsrooms, but like, you know, the media industry sort of magnifies its own, its own activism, I guess. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last question for you, Ben. And and again, I don't know if you know the answer to that. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. One of the things I was wondering about is, I wonder if the pandemic and and the fact that, you know, some people had to go to work during the pandemic, some people, you know, were out of work during the pandemic. Um, and we actually talked about this with a guest earlier, you know, from the veterans point of view. But I, I just wonder if there's more sympathy uh, for workers because of the pandemic. You know, I, I don't have a simple answer to that. I'm sure somebody smarter than me does. I, I, I do think that yeah, people sort of thought about, I mean, it, because it changed almost everybody's work life. Like, I think a lot of people also both, you know, both, you know, really valued a bunch of poorly paid, quote unquote, frontline workers and sort of understood the value of their labor, but also their own, a lot of people's, of other people's kind of own work lives changed and they like kind of were th- rethinking, you know, the sort of nature. It just made people think about work, I think, in, in, a, in, sort of an explicit way and not take things for granted. And I do think that it just sort of sharpened a lot of people's perceptions about, about work, about management, about how much autonomy you have or don't have. That will do it for this week's edition of your rights to work. Once again, shout out to all our union veterans and all veterans out there on this veterans day, 2021. Thank you all for listening And thanks, as always, to Kalia, our engineer. We will see you all next week. Take care, everybody. This is a public service announcement with guitar. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. So, some pretty good news. Again, I'm, I'm happy that the infrastructure bill is passed. Now, how do we take that money, get it out the door, and start rebuilding America? And as I've been from this moment forward, I'm hoping every politician, every voter finds a picket line, adopts a striker and gets a master's class in working class economics and talk about how do we rebuild our small communities, our rural areas? How do we rebuild manufacturing and rebuild our country? And here to share some thoughts on how we get to that point uh, and where we need to go from here. I've asked David Pepper to come talk with us. David's a former Ohio Democratic Party chair. He's also the author of Laboratories of Autocracy, a wake-up call from behind the lines. David, thanks for taking time for us. Thanks for having me. This is, I've been saying, this is, in, in Biden's words, a BFD. This is a big deal. Yeah. Uh, while I don't think it's enough, I think it's still a big deal. Yeah. No, it is a big deal. If you think about it in terms of these communities, it's this is the opposite of trickle-down economics. We finally get to show what it means to invest and that it can actually make a difference. And I think the reason this never got done under Trump was at the end of the day, they don't want, they don't, Mitch McConnell and these others, they don't want people to see 
that robust investment can actually lift places that haven't seen a break in a long time. I think in another year or two, especially after the stuff that's keep that keeps coming out, I think Trump will be a little battered, but I still don't want him to run in 2024. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I don't either. You, you don't want to wish for that. But I think that if he were, this is a bad moment for him. He knows it. He can't even help himself. But now he's trying to blame McConnell for his own failures. You know, this is a moment where, again, you know, uh, the, the idea of shovel-ready projects, how many yeah. shovel-ready projects do we have to get out the door to start getting things done so people actually see the work being done? It's one right. thing to have the signing ceremony and say, hey, there's money coming. It's a whole totally. other thing for people to actually see the actual work being done, the jobs being created, the lives being better, all of that stuff. Yeah, this is the point I've been trying to make for some time. Um you got to really be intentional and explicit that this is going to a lot of these places that don't think it's going to them. In Ohio, what's the famous bridge that's falling apart down the street from me, Brent Spence Bridge? Massive project. Small towns are thinking, well, this is for that bridge, and I hope it is. This bridge needs something. But, in, but they don't think it's for their town. They think it's for somewhere else, and unless you're really... I think bend over backwards to say there are projects near you that you will see and then do it. So they see it. They'll just assume it's for somewhere else and they won't frankly vote based upon it. So I think this is where Tom Vilsack, Pete Buttigieg, Grant Hall, you know, Marsha Fudge, who's from Ohio. I think all of them need to really be thinking through the breadth of this, where it goes. And again, be very explicit, intentional. And the other thing I would do is sometimes I think at the highest levels of politics, People just think like a speech is addressing. Oh, we can give a speech on that. We get go walk these towns. Don't call everyone together for a speech. Maybe it's some get out of the car if you can, security wise. Walk the street. Feel the the dilapidation in these places. You can't help but get pissed off, pardon yep. my French. It's terrible. They're dying. Go feel it, go see it, and, and have in a year or two, the hope is shown that something came through the town and fixed it. And sometimes, again, I think like, oh, whether you give a speech and you think you covered it, go to the places, walk the town, see the, see the decay, and then come back later when the work's being done, talk to the workers and come back after that when the main street looks a lot better. I think it's gotta be a much more sort of bottoms up approach to this messaging than just showing up and give speeches to big groups. It's old school retail politics. It's being part of the community. It's how it's supposed to work, which is why I've been right. saying in this moment, if you're a Democratic politician, you're a Democratic voter, I don't care where on the spectrum, you need to find a picket line. You need to get out and talk to those striking workers and find out why they're there. Find out the right. issues that are affecting their lives. Take the master's class on working class economics and then do something to make their lives better and other working people's lives better. Maybe you're going to have it in Congress, maybe the State House. Keep it away from Keep our it. schools. I'm right there with you. Uh, David, I appreciate the time. Great stuff. Hope people will check out the book, uh, Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines, uh, written by David Pepper. David, again, thanks so much. I look forward to talking to you again real soon. Thanks, Rick. Take care. Good stuff. Uh, let's take a quick break right back after this. Stick around. You're listening to The Rick Smith Show. We're working people. Come to talk. Remembering that united we bargain, divided we beg. Rick Smith. You're listening to Educating from the Heart. 
Thank you for joining our lively conversations with teachers, support professionals, parents, and students as they share issues that matter most in our public schools. Here are your hosts, Tina Dunbar and Luke Flint. Welcome to another episode of Educating from the Heart. I'm Tina with Luke. Educators in Florida are very fortunate to be part of what's known as Emerge State. That means union members affiliated with the FEA are also members of both the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers. Now, recently, we sat down with the presidents of both unions, Becky Pringle from the NEA and Randy Weingarten from the AFT. The conversation you're about to hear starts with a very specific example of why workers need strong organizations to advocate for them. You'll hear how unions work together to breathe new life into the public service loan forgiveness program and make it a reality all educators can depend upon. Very challenging times right now. So it's always important to celebrate our wins but it's especially important right now. And we just had a really big win for so many of our members. And I'm talking about public service loan forgiveness. Uh, Their win was so recent, some of our people listening right now might not even know what I'm talking about. So if you could just briefly explain what the victory was and the role that each of our national affiliates had in bringing that victory home for our members. So Congress made a promise. Randy, that we were three years old when the t- when. So they made a promise that people working in public service, if they worked in public service 10 years, then their loans that they had taken out to go to college to study, to be that that to be in that that job, to be that professional would be forgiven. Right. And we worked hard for that, right? And it was an exciting time and so instrumental, really seriously, was so instrumental in attracting students into the profession of teaching, for sure, Mm -hmm. especially students of color. Mm-hmm. Because debt disproportionately impacts them, because so too, so often they are first generation, and so they have to take out really massive loans. And so the idea of loan forgiveness, if they taught for 10 years, was huge. Yeah, that didn't happen. Right. That didn't happen. So let's be fair. I don't think the Obama administration or Arnie Duncan did a good job in making clear what people had to do and things right. like that. I don't mm-hmm. want to put all... Because I do think that Joe Biden and Miguel Cardona, it's not just that elections matter. It's the election of someone who is pro-public education. Yes, And and that is why he's an NEA member. So let's just be clear that Mm -hmm. it's not as if you just take a magic wand and say, okay, make this go away. Because there were a bunch of things that when they moved all the student loans under the umbrella of the Ed Department, They could have made this easier to do. Right. But what happened, and this is where Betsy DeVos is the real culprit, what happened is that as Secretary of Education, she sided with the servicers Mm -hmm. much more than she sided with the borrowers. Mm -hmm. Yes. So a servicer like Navient, first entity we sued, they could basically say, okay, Becky, you were supposed to pay $200.22 this month. 
and you pay $200.21, that payment doesn't count. Or somebody was in a direct loan or a non-direct loan or went with a servicer that was not in public service loan forgiveness, those payments don't count. So what we did was we said, you can fix a lot of this stuff administratively. We don't have to go back to Congress. Right. You, Betsy DeVos, have a lot of power as the Secretary of Education. That's why you wanted the damn job. So she she wanted to destroy things. But she yes. wanted the power. Absolutely. And on this stuff, she was like, nope, I can't do anything. And so these two things nested together, essentially this is what it means. That everyone who's had and been denied, not that big <clears throat> denial, effective from November 2020 and before. So everybody who was denied during the Trump automatically reviewed. Great. Everyone else using these new rules mm-hmm. will have to ask for the review, but between NEA and AFT, we have this app called Summer, which helps people navigate mm-hmm. through it. Mm-hmm. Um, Everyone is going to have new rules through October 2022, but the lawsuit allows everyone to get a new review to make sure anyone who was denied gets a new review under the new rules, and that is going to be life-changing. And we had three plaintiffs with us yesterday when we announced this. $400,000 of in, in those eight people named plaintiffs that were discharged immediately. And the last thing I'll say is, look, we got a lot of calls yesterday about this, but you take an AFT-NEA member like Bonnie Wyla Sawgraves, who is a nationally board-certified teacher at Atlantic High School in Port Orange. She's taught for 30 years. Originally took out a $10,000 loan. She's allowing me to say this. $10,000 bachelor's degree, $28,000 for her master's. Even after paying all these loans because of who the servicer was, she now owes $62,000. Oh my goodness. And so what's happened is that if you're in that maze, that Kafka-esque Gordian note, and now, now, we think it's all going to be forgiven. And we were talking to her today. Think about 60 years old, wanted to teach school, teacher Mm -hmm. in Florida. That's what's so life-changing about the advocacy we both did, NEA, AFT, putting a face on it, and also all those other student loan groups, because you got to do this with community. But as Becky just said, the difference between a secretary of education who cares <laughs> and is willing to go through and get rid of that red tape, a president who cares right. versus, look, Bush put this together. That's life-changing Absolutely. in terms mm-hmm. of our membership. Until we meet again. Keep educating from the heart. If you enjoy our podcast, ask your friends and colleagues to subscribe on our website at feaweb.org backslash educating from the heart.
That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, including complete versions of the shows you heard today. And you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produced the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at LaborRadioNet. Find out more on our website at LaborRadioNetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>